Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, the book of Acts, chapter 10, continued. It is said that to a hammer everything looks like a nail. So I suppose for me, as a Hebrew roots Bible teacher, Acts chapter 10 looks like one of those places in the Bible that needs to be attacked with great vigor. Therefore, as we enter our second week of studying Acts chapter 10, we're going to continue to move deliberately and carefully and we're going to dissect this chapter as it, as it plays a crucial role in Christian and Messianic doctrine. Now I suspect that what we discussed last week concerning especially the second paragraph of chapter 10 about the sheet of the animals coming down from heaven was challenging to absorb due to the many nuances that are present there and the difficulties of using terms that Christians aren't used to hearing. If it was challenging or it was confusing for you, don't feel bad about it. It is indeed complex. That said, it is critical that we understand the intended meaning behind those four-legged beasts and the other creatures in that sheet that descends from heaven as thoroughly as we can because, frankly, it has been poorly interpreted and taught for centuries by some of our greatest and most recognized Bible scholars. And this is due to two factors. First, a built-in denominational and doctrinal bias that ignores the plain meaning of the passages. And second of all, a lack of knowledge about Judaism and the synagogue and halakha and, and ancient Jewish culture in general that prevents an otherwise superior Bible scholar from seeing what is actually occurring in its historical context. The result has been some Christian doctrine that's not only incorrect, but it fosters anti-Semitism and a powerless, casual Christianity that we see present in our day. Now, I want to review with you just a bit from last time, but also to add some additional information and explanation in hopes of helping you to grasp this as best you can before we continue with the next several verses of Acts chapter 10. It's a little like the importance of first being comfortable with basic math. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division before you move on to algebra. Now I'm going to begin by giving you an example of the nature of the problem that Bible students wrestle with in trying to discover the truth of Acts chapter 10 by quoting to you from perhaps the most authoritative modern commentary on the book of Acts in publication today as authored by the venerable F.F. F. Bruce. Now I ask you to listen very carefully to what he says about the nature and the plain meaning of this passage. But then notice how despite admitting the truth he'll then do an about-face and revert to his doctrinal stance to replace it. In his commentary on the book of Acts in reference to Acts 10, 
verses 9 through 19, and you'll recognize this in a moment, F.F. Bruce says this, This divine cleansing of food in the vision is a parable of the divine cleansing of human beings in the incident to which the vision leads up. It didn't take Peter long to understand this. God has taught me, he says later in the present narrative, to call no human being profane or unclean. So, F.F. Bruce fully acknowledges that the vision Peter witnesses is a parable. That is, it's not literal, but rather it's a simple story using commonly known objects and items symbolically to get a point across. The sheet full of animals is meant to represent something else entirely. I want to give you an example of how a parable works using one we're all familiar with. The parable that Yeshua told about the ten virgins. That took place in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. We hear him say this. This is Yeshua speaking now. The kingdom of heaven at that time will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, five were sensible. Now the foolish ones took lamps with them, but no oil. Whereas the others took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was late, so they all went to sleep. It was in the middle of the night when the cry rang out, The bridegroom is here, go to meet him. The girls all woke up and they prepared their lamps for lighting and the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Oh, give me some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both you and us. Go to the oil dealers and buy some for yourselves. But as they were going off to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other bridesmaids came and said, Sir, sir, let us in. But he answered, Indeed, I tell you, I don't know you. So stay alert because you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, if we don't notice that this is a parable, and if we don't recognize that Yeshua is employing commonly understood terms and characters and objects used within Jewish culture to concoct a fanciful and memorable story to make his point, then we leave this passage deciding that he is instructing his followers, his disciples, about literal grooms, virgins, lamps, and olive oil. Right? So if there wasn't a parable, then what other conclusion could we arrive at but that if you are not a Jewish virgin, this simply doesn't apply to you? And if you are a Jewish virgin, well, let me tell you something. You need to urgently acquire acquire a couple of lamps. And you need to stock up a ready supply of olive oil to fuel them if you expect to succeed in getting married. But of course, it's a parable. So the people and the objects, the virgins and the lamps, are symbolic of something else. Now, let's apply this to Acts chapter 10. F.F. Bruce agrees. He unequivocally states 
that the vision of the sheet with the animals the instruction to kill and eat them is a story, in this case a vision, told as a parable. That is, the scene uses objects and circumstances familiar to Jews to make a point. But like with the parable of the ten virgins, that doesn't actually mean for the hearer to think this is about virgins and lamps. So Peter's vision doesn't actually mean for the hearer to think this is about a sheet and some unclean animals nor about killing them and eating them. Rather, it's about something else entirely because that's how parables work. A couple of sentences later, after Professor Bruce acknowledges that Peter's vision is a parable, which of course it is, and the meaning has to do with the acceptance of Gentiles, now he turns right around and he says this, Yet the cleansing of the food is not wholly parabolic. There is a connection between the abrogation of the Levitical food laws and the removal of the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. I'm not intending to single out F.F. Bruce. He's a great scholar. However, his comment is so representative of many others. He, as do most Christian commentators, approaches the entire New Testament with the predetermined viewpoint that the Levitical food laws, as well as all other Torah laws, have been abolished. So everything that happens in the New Testament must fit within that understanding, no matter if the text says something else entirely different. Doesn't matter. Yes, Bruce agrees. Peter's vision's a parable. Yes, Bruce agrees. The animals are just symbolic. Yes, he agrees. Peter himself acknowledges this has nothing to do with animals or food, but rather this is about admitting Gentiles into the fold. However, in the opinion of Bruce and of many other Gentile Bible scholars, then this is equally about God abolishing the kosher food laws. So I suppose, if that's the case, then the parable of the virgins must be equally and literally about virgins and lamps. The parable of Jesus, using the seeds falling onto rocky soil to characterize believers then, well, I guess that must be equally about seeds, rocks, and soil. You don't believe that. I don't believe that. I I hope you can see this odd conclusion that makes this one parable, Peter's vision out of all other parables in the Bible, different. Entirely different. Whereby the fanciful objects that are symbolic and acknowledged as such suddenly become real and literal. Why would Bruce and others claim such a thing? Because it is his and their foundational Christian doctrine, regardless of what the Bible actually says, that Gentile Christians have no duty to follow God's food laws because Christ abolished the law. (laughs) Something which Christ explicitly said, no, he didn't. I don't ever want to miss an opportunity to revisit this foundational teaching of Messiah Yeshua. We're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to complete them. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and they teach others to do so are going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this statement by Yeshua can't be any more definitive. He bluntly says he didn't abolish the Torah. The law. He says it. Then he expands upon it and he warns against teaching against what he just said. So admittedly, this statement forms the nucleus of my worldview about Yeshua and the relation of the law of Moses to believers and from it I have full confidence to challenge church doctrines that are not in compliance with this commandment from Christ. Outside of salvation there is no other issue of this magnitude than our understanding the place of the law of Moses and the life of a believer. And while I don't have all the answers about how to do it Without doubt, the law of Moses remains and we are to obey it. Now, let's revisit the complex issue of the conversation between Peter and God, whereby Peter was in a trance and essentially he was having what we might call an out-of-body experience. Now, this, this is important because it explains his vision on Jewish terms. Jewish terms. Which of course is how it's told. And after the heavenly voice tells Peter to kill and to eat the unclean animals in the sheet, Peter responds with, No! Because he's never eaten such things. No doubt Peter thought this was a test. Because otherwise he wouldn't have emphatically refused In Acts 10.14, Peter adds the statement that he's never eaten anything common or unclean. In the complete Jewish Bible, along with most other English Bible versions, replaces the word common with either unholy or unclean. Some Bibles will replace the word common with the word profane unholy, unclean, and profane are all incorrect translations. The Greek word is koinos. It means common. That's the proper translation. It is the same word from which we get the type of Greek that the New Testament is written in. Koine Greek. Common Greek. The Greek of everyday language and conversation. In biblical terms, however, common is not an adjective that means something that is regularly done or is ordinary. Rather, common is a spiritual status assigned to certain objects and to certain people. The three possible states 
of spiritual status for humans and objects, and this is all spelled out to us in the Torah, are holy, common, or unclean. Those three. Holy means sanctified, set apart for God. Common means something that has not been set apart for God. But it doesn't mean evil or wicked or bad, and it sure doesn't mean unclean. Common is a kind of neutral state that exists in between holy and unclean. And the third possible spiritual status is unclean. Now, unclean is a condition of defilement that means an object or a person is not suitable for use by God. And to try to use an object or a person in its unclean state for such purpose is indeed wicked. Unclean, follow me, unclean is a condition that's caused by something. Nothing in its naturally created state is unclean. Nothing. Unclean food is food that is, has in some way become contaminated or mishandled. Unclean food is otherwise kosher food. But something has ritually defiled it. Thus, unclean food can't be consumed. But if it hadn't been defiled, it could have been. What's important for us to understand is there is no such designation in the Bible as common food. Common is not a food category. Nor is it a God-ordained condition of edible items. Common doesn't apply to food. Holy food is a food category. And it is kosher food that has been used for an altar sacrifice. Only priests are allowed to eat certain portions of that holy food that have been brought as a sacrificial offering. So, regular Jews, like Peter, they can't ever eat holy food. Ever. Rabbi Joseph Shulam points out that there is a food category called chulin. Chulin. That refers to kosher food that has not been used for sacrifices, so regular Jews can eat it. It's the category name for everyday food that regular Jews eat. So the rule is regular Jews eat hulin food, while only priests can eat holy food. In fact, according to God's laws, the only regular uh, food, only food rather that regular Jews can eat is chulin. However, if that's true, then Peter's statement becomes all the more strange, because Peter claims he's never eaten food from the very food category chulin. That is the only food category a regular Jew is allowed to eat from, because Peter's not a priest. 
I hope you're beginning to see the dilemma of this verse. It doesn't make any sense when we take it in its, its normal English meaning. But there's an obvious solution to this dilemma. I told you last week, in the end, just like what F.F. Bruce also says, what is happening here is that this vision is a parable. So fruit isn't the subject at all. Rather, it's just symbolic of something else. And soon we learn that that something else is Gentiles. This understanding then explains why a term that doesn't apply to food, that term is common, but it does apply to human beings, is being used in the vision of the animals. And this is also why Peter was so perplexed over the meaning of this vision because taken literally, just like I've shown you when we break it down, it doesn't make any sense. Well, let's reread a portion of Acts chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1374. Acts chapter 10, verse 17. We're going to read through 29. Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of this vision he had seen when the men Cornelius had sent, having inquired for Shimon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask if Shimon, known as Kepha, was standing there. And while Kepha, that's Peter's mind, was still on the vision, the spirit said, three men are looking for you. Now get up, go downstairs and have no misgivings about going with them because I myself have sent them. So Kepha went down and he said to the men, you are looking for me. Here I am. What brings you here? They answered, Cornelius. He's a Roman army officer. He's an upright man and a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation, and he was told by a holy angel to have you come to his house and listen to what you have to say. So Peter invited them to be his guests. The next day he got up and he went with them and accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. He arrived at Caesarea the day after that. Cornelius was expecting them. He had already called together his relatives and close friends, and as Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met him, and he fell prostrated at his feet. But Kepha pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up! I myself am just a man. And as he talked with him, Peter went inside and found many people gathered, and he said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. Tell me then, why did you send for me? Typically, Bible commentators say that the reason for people being, for, for Peter being bewildered about this vision is because God told him it was okay now to just forget all the food laws and from here on out you need anything you want, Peter. But Peter simply couldn't accept it. But as I just demonstrated, that wasn't the case at all. For one thing, Peter had heard directly from Yeshua's mouth what I just read to you from Matthew 5, 17 through 19, that the Torah wasn't changed in the least when he came, let alone abolished. Rather, see, Peter was bewildered because these terms he was so familiar with 
that were applied to food in his vision weren't food terms. They were terms reserved for describing the spiritual status of humans and objects. And as he was no longer in a trance and he was now pondering this strange vision, the men that the centurion Cornelius sent to fetch him arrive at Shimon the Tanner's house and they ask about Peter. Now the Holy Spirit tells Peter that these three men are looking for him, that God has pre-planned this meeting so Peter doesn't need to be alarmed, but he does need to go with them. So at this point, Kepha doesn't know what's going on. He didn't know what's supposed to happen. And under the circumstances, if it was me, I'd assume that this was somehow connected to the vision. I imagine Kepha assumes that as well. Well, as Peter goes down from the roof to meet these men, he asks them their purpose. And they reply that they're here on the behalf of the Roman centurion Cornelius and that he's an upright man and he's a God-fearer. This means to Peter that Cornelius is a Gentile, a Gentile who worships the God of Israel, but he has not been circumcised. That is, Cornelius has not gone so far in his beliefs that he's converted and become a Jew. These men go on to explain that an angel appeared to their master and he told them to send for Peter and that they were assigned to go to Yafo and escort Peter back to Caesarea. There was no demand involved. It was all just very matter of fact. And no doubt if Peter had not had his vision and if the spirit in some unnamed way hadn't told Peter to go, he would have been too fearful to go voluntarily. Well, it needs to be stated that at this moment, Peter had no idea what God was up to. He had no inkling that Gentiles could be admitted to Christ's kingdom and could attain the same holy spiritual status as the Hebrews. Why is that? Because the teachings of the synagogues were that Gentiles were unclean. This was not disputed among Jews. It wasn't that the Jews hated their Roman oppressors so much that they simply didn't want to associate with them and so they called them unclean as a kind of nasty epithet. Rather, it was a given among Jews that God saw Gentiles as ritually unclean. But the truth is that according to the Torah, Gentiles were not created unclean. They were just created and classified by Yehovah as not holy. Instead, Gentiles were created spiritually common. And if we go back to our discussion of the vision of the animals and the sheep, then we understand what God was telling Peter. God wasn't telling Peter that at one time Gentiles were unclean, but now He's made them clean. Rather, He was telling Peter... Gentiles were spiritually common and thus Peter and by extension all of Judaism had no authorization to change the classification of Gentiles to unclean. God was straightening out Peter's theology. This was not new theology. This wasn't changed theology. This is how it had always been since God declared Abraham as holy and set apart. And thus, at that moment, 
They were divided, uh, God divided and separated the human race into two parts. Holy Hebrews and common Gentiles. But the synagogue authorities had created a doctrine that overturned God's commands and now God was dealing with it beginning with, Port, uh, with Peter and with Cornelius. Peter left with the men. But some of the other brothers, referring to believers, tagged along. Now this was an unusual situation. showed wisdom for Peter not to go it alone. And we find out in the next chapter that it was six believers that went along with him. And while Peter was traveling, which is about a two-day journey, Cornelius was in the meantime gathering his relatives and his close friends to his house to hear what Peter would have to say to him, say to them. He understood that whatever it was, it would be highly important since God himself had arranged all this. Well, as Peter arrives, he sees this, this throng waiting for him. I imagine it embarrassed him to have a Roman centurion fall on his face before him and this in front of all those people. So Peter quickly says, get up! He's only a man. He's not to be worshipped. Well, entering this Gentile in, into this Gentile's home, huh, that was unfamiliar territory. Such an act was unthinkable to a Jew. And yet, here he was. And at God's instruction to boot. Peter feels he needs to explain this situation to Cornelius and to his family and friends before things get underway. And it's important that we hear what he says and the way that he meant it. Verse 28 in the complete Jewish Bible has Peter saying this. He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. However, that's a very loose translation of what he said. Here is one that sticks more to the more literal, actual meaning of the Greek. You find this in the Revised Standard Version. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. And God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter says it is unlawful to be doing what he's now doing, which is to go and associate or go into the dwelling place of a Gentile. The Greek word being translated as unlawful is athemitos. Athemitos. It's a word that means to do something that's illicit or it breaks a law code or, or it's even criminal. Peter's not referring to the law of Moses. The law of Moses doesn't say anything about going into a Gentile's house. He's referring to halakha. He's referring to Jewish law. Not the law of Moses. He's referring to tradition. So immediately Peter deals with the issue of the purity laws as it pertains to Gentiles. It's a touchy subject, to say the least. Peter understood and believed that Cornelius was a God-fearer, a Gentile that worshipped the God of Israel. So idolatry was of no issue. Nevertheless, it didn't change Cornelius' status 
from being a Gentile. So ritual purity issues, as far as Jews were concerned, remained. Food was an especially big issue, of course, as it was the central part of Middle Eastern hospitality. But food wasn't the only showstopper from the Jews' perspective. As I mentioned, idolatry was another major issue as it was standard, you see, for Gentiles to have God images in their homes. Blasphemy was also an issue as were all the loose sexual morals of Gentiles as compared to those of the Jews. But then Peter says that God has shown him that he should not call any man common or unclean. Again, the Greek word koinos is used meaning common. The Greek word akathartos is used meaning unclean. So in the intervening 72 hours, that's all we're talking about here, 72 hours since Peter's vision and his arrival at Cornelius' home, the meaning of this vision parable has become clearer to Peter. This is all about Gentiles. And it's all about their spiritual status before God. Yet, while it's rather easy for us to understand why Peter would say that God showed him not to call any man unclean, we can get that. It's a lot less easy to understand why he'd say that no man should be called common. I mean, recall there's only three possible spiritual statuses for a human being. Holy, common, and unclean. So on the surface, it seems as if Peter is saying that God has just eliminated two of the three possible spiritual status conditions for humans. Common and unclean, which only leaves holy. So are we to take from this that Peter and God now see all human beings on this planet as holy? No, of course not. So what exactly does this mean to communicate? Well, first of all, we have here humans talking in the usual way. Neither Peter nor Cornelius are theologians or scholars. So saying any man is not meant to be precise as in every human being in existence. What Peter and God are saying is, A, a Gentile is not unclean, and he shouldn't be called such. And B, that while common has been considered as the natural spiritual status for Gentiles, that indeed being elevated up to a holy status, like Hebrews are, is possible for Gentiles. So Gentiles aren't permanently relegated into the common status and nothing can change that. But no doubt Peter didn't understand the breadth and the depth of this new revelation. In fact, it would be mostly Paul that would try to articulate what this meant for Gentiles. And then, of course, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in light of Christ's advent. I do want to repeat this. This was not new theology. This was not that Christ's death had changed the spiritual status of Gentiles automatically from unclean, first of all, because Gentiles weren't unclean. It was only new halakha 
for Peter and for virtually all Jews. God was only reinforcing and instructing what had always been. He wasn't changing the status of Gentiles. They were still common. Rather, the Jewish synagogue leaders had overturned God's law on the subject of Gentiles and now God was overriding the wrong doctrine of those synagogue leaders and oh my, the trouble this was going to cause. But, and it is not yet clear to Peter that this is the case, Gentiles who accepted Christ, well, they could be elevated from their status as common up to holy. Now, was this the first time then that Gentiles could leave behind their common status and attain a holy status like the Hebrews enjoyed? No! Gentiles had always had the option of leaving behind home, family, and nation and becoming a Hebrew. Such an offer was open to both male and female Gentiles. Ruth being one of the most famous cases of an unmarried woman making the decision on her own to become a Hebrew as she was a foreign widow. But the only means for a Gentile to gain holy status before Christ was for them to become a Hebrew. Yeshua's death and resurrection indeed changed that. Now, through faith and trust in Him as the Messiah and as God's Son, Gentiles could attain the spiritual status of holy. They did not have to first become Hebrews. But it took time before this understanding took hold among the believing Jews. This then raised another sensitive and contentious issue because to become a Hebrew, a male had to be circumcised. And from the Jewish believer's viewpoint, why would a Gentile want to have a Jewish Messiah if he also didn't want to be Jewish? Since for Jews, circumcision was the primary outward symbol that separated Hebrews from Gentiles, it still made no sense to most members of the way how a Gentile could hope to accept Yeshua if he wasn't going to accept circumcision. And in a few more verses, we see that this issue arises in force as we're going to hear of the circumcision faction intervening. And this faction was embedded within the body of Jewish believers. So already we see that the body of believers was divided. Now at first it was divided between the Hebrew-speaking believers and the Greek-speaking believers. Now we see that of those two groups, some formed the circumcision faction that believed that while Gentiles could indeed accept Yeshua, it didn't change the requirement for them to be circumcised and therefore to essentially become Jews. In other words, in their minds, 
Christ enabled Gentiles to have Messiah Yeshua for salvation, but they had to stop being Gentiles in order to do it. It's not at all unlike the bulk of Christianity that has for 1,800 years determined that Christ is for Gentiles. And while a Jew can accept Jesus, first, he has to renounce his Jewishness and essentially become a Gentile. One of the core missions of Seed of Abraham Ministries Torah class is to put the truth to this wrong-minded, man-made doctrine. Jews do not have to leave their Jewishness behind to accept Messiah. Yeshua came as the Jewish Messiah. We'll finish up Acts chapter 10 next time.